Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. My guest today is Tom the Trader, who has been trading and analyzing markets for the last 13 years. Today I had a great conversation with Tom about the technical outlook for the SPX and why he thinks that the 4100 to 3900 region is a very key area of support. Tom expects that given the extreme degree of fear in the market, we could see a rebound at about these levels. However, if we sustain a break below 3900, we might even have to retest the October lows. Tom is incredibly experienced when it comes to technical analysis, and it really shows if you look at his work. He has a great grasp of various forms of technical analysis, and he combines them also with these indicators of fear, which I think really rounds out his analysis and makes it really compelling. As always, an incredibly insightful conversation, full of great knowledge about technical analysis. We covered, obviously, the main indexes, different sectors, and I even got Tom to give us a recommendation on a particular stock. As always, this should not be interpreted as financial advice, and the opinions expressed are solely those of the participants in the podcast. As always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All right, welcome to the show, Tom the Trader. Hey there. Thanks for having me, James. So I've been reading some of your stuff and I got very interested in some of your work. I've been looking at uh, some of your posts on Twitter, also your Substack, and a couple of things stood out to me. Uh, I thought that it was quite interesting. Some of the levels, technical levels you talk about for the SPX, such as the 4100 level. Also thought it was quite interesting how you talked about uh, that idea of fear coming into the market. You know, it seems quite appropriate, especially since we have a Halloween coming up next week. So, um, yeah, I guess just to start off, I'd be interested to know, why do you talk about that 4,100 level and how do you, what do you mean by fear and how do you see that playing into this market and this current correction? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question to start it off and I'll, uh, it'll probably make a bit more sense if, if the audience finds themselves back to my chart, it's in some way, shape or form, either through X, Twitter or, uh, through the Substack, but. Uh, the first question is, you know, when, when I think about fear, um, and, and it's not just fear, it's generally speaking, it's sentiment. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to understand whether the market is in an environment that is fear-driven or greed-driven. And it, it, it's remarkable, but uh, generally speaking, the the saying you know, goes, buy fear, sell greed. Uh, there is genuine truth behind that and functionality from a market investment standpoint. I typically reference just the CNN fear and greed index that's commonly used. Um, I actually find that that's a valuable piece of information because it's so frequently used. Um, it in itself, uh, you'll find a lot of people referencing that piece of information to determine whether the market is in a state of fear, state of greed. Um, before I kind of answer the 4100 level, I just want to kind of highlight back in July, I kind of written both on X and on the Substack, that everybody was in the pool. You know, euphoria was overflowing. Um, at that time, uh, we were almost in a state of greed uh, in the in the markets for a period of almost two months, longer than I had anticipated. It was a good lesson on duration. Um, I'd expect to be just live there for a little bit, but two months was a bit longer than I had planned. Um, and the market rallied quite nicely through June and July in that euphoria state. Uh, today, we find ourselves in a very different spot. Uh, we've now lived in a state of fear uh, for just over four weeks. Uh, we're going into week five right now. And uh, the reason 
I'm targeting the 3950 to 4100 level as a correction base for the S&P 500, uh, really comes down to just one major observation. It's the most transacted area mm-hmm. on the S&P 500 over the last two years. So since the 2022 high, the, uh, 950, the, uh, the 3950 and the 4100 levels both have major peaks on them in the volume profile. And as a function of that, I anticipate that when price does decline into that area, you'll find investors will offer support at a minimum. I think that area should be afforded the opportunity to be a benefit of the doubt for support. Now, if 3950 fails, that's also an extremely good uh, level for long exposure risk management. And that's kind of how I think about it in terms of navigating the markets. As I plan to position long here through 3950 and 4100, should like speculation play out, 3950 is the great line in the sand. If we stay beneath that line for far too long, I won't be interested to hang around. It, it's such a key level that I just won't be interested to hang around for too long if it breaks down. I'll have to revisit my perspective on the market at that time. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I think it'll at a minimum offer a good first spot to uh, take some long exposure uh, for a little bit more than a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm very interested because you obviously have this very strong technical background, but you're also combining it with this kind of idea of the sentiment. And I'd like to know a little bit more about what your background is, kind of how you got into technical analysis and perhaps maybe what um what's what's let's say your what are the tools you, you use, what kind of what's kind of your preferred method of, of technical analysis, if you would. Yeah, it's a good question. So I've I've been a market participant uh for just over thirteen years now. Uh, my background has nothing to do with the stock market. I'm a chemical engineer by trade. Uh, so I've got the pleasure of uh, watching molecules get split and do really cool things in the energy industry. Um, I still do that on a day-to-day basis. So this is not, not full-time, but I do manage my full portfolio uh, entirely through the lens of technical analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, I just got into it as a an opportunity to expedite uh, wealth development. Uh, finally, you know, ball and moving university and school, I had an opportunity to uh, make a good income. And uh, really quickly, my hope was to have the income that I had collected and saved grow fast. Uh, and, and naturally, through one way, shape, or form, you find yourself into the market, whether it's through your employer's you know, contribution savings matching programs that just get dumped into an index fund, or potentially bonds, if you're so savvy enough to make a choice between the two at that time. Um yeah, ultimately just found myself understanding that I had an opportunity to expedite that wealth development through um, manipulating my portfolio in the uh, the stock market. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm very curious then, you talk about uh, using technicals for your whole portfolio. Does that mean that, you know, you even like, let's say, low positions, you, you're always looking at the technicals. So are you very active in terms of entering and exiting positions or do you have maybe some more just long-term holds at all? I would say I'm quite active, generally speaking. Um, there's there's frequent changes, I would say, uh, at a minimum on a weekly to bi-weekly basis, there's some adjustment to the portfolio. Large changes to the portfolio are infrequent because really they just move with the market. Um, the largest change that I made to my portfolio was actually last August. So not... Uh, Sorry, not last August, the one prior. So August of 20, uh, 2022. Um, that was the first time in over 
probably over a decade where I had positioned my uh, portfolio to in excess of 85% cash. I decided to exit the market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was in a position of thinking that the big rally that we observed through July and August was a saving grace from the preceding May and June decline that was observed. And I thought I didn't want to be a part of it any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a further decline was coming. So that would probably be the largest change, but no, I, I'd say quarterly is probably fair. Um, it's a tough question for me to say, just only be, it's a tough question for me to answer because I don't really, I don't really care how long an investment or a position is held. So long as the move technically plays out for me, if I'm wiped out of a position within a few days, that's okay too. Uh, it's a great feedback loop that the analysis I'm using is too sensitive. Um, or if I'm hanging out for too long, I mean, I also get feedback as well in that, that aspect as well. Right. So in, and in terms of gaining you know, to the market, what's your preferred method then? Do you have single stocks or do you prefer to use something like options? So I, I don't like the uh, the options market. And I know that's probably an unpopular answer for uh, a lot of young retail investors today. Uh, it's a popular um, tool to, to use in the market. It's just not the one that fits me, uh, particularly because you got to get two things right when you play options. You need to get price correct. And then you've also got to get the time aspect of it correct. Um, alternatively, you could play longer duration options and kind of reduce that time decay. Uh, but I've just found that's not functional for me, or I, I haven't found much success in the options market. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically for me, I'll manage my book with predominantly exponent to the S&P 500, some form of bonds and uh, individual stocks. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, and, and, sorry, go ahead. No, no. I think I was going to answer your initial question on kind of what I use, but I'll, I'll maybe loop into that later. Oh, right. Now I was just going to say then within we're picking individual stocks, you would pick those purely out of out of a technical analysis, or is there any kind of a fundamental look at individual stock positions? That's a, yeah, very good question. Thank you. So I, as much as I don't incorporate, or I, I won't say I'm a fundamental investor because I don't, it's not my strength. I'll rely on others to identify uh, fundamental stocks and I may throw them onto a watch list and I'll watch the chart. And then when I, I see something that I like, I'll uh, I'll progress into it. Like I do like the high growth names. They're fun to follow along. The stories are great. The news flow is exciting. So you can't completely remove yourself from that part of the market. And I think that's what keeps it enjoyable too. You want to root for something or someone sometimes uh, behind the ticker. So I think that is fun. Like I do, uh, I do like, high growth names when they're appropriate and uh, they've been highly uh, highly damaged throughout the past two two and a half three years so uh, there's an opportunity for them to kind of come back and i think that's that's a group that i am watching uh the high growth uh, iwm small cap arc like names mm-hmm. absolutely yeah i think there's definitely some opportunities then i kind of agree with you also on the idea of options obviously uh, very tricky to 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 use those right and that that you know, requires a whole other set of skills that isn't necessarily technical analysis. Now, in terms of technical analysis, you've obviously you've been in the market, I think you said 13 years. Um, what have you found in that time that uh, works for you? I've seen, for example, in some of your charts, you look at stuff like, uh, you know, exponential moving averages, you have volume, uh, RSI, just just kind of uh, give us a, a little overview of your go-tos and maybe also what are things that you've noticed doesn't work that maybe other people are using. Yeah. No, that's a that's a good question. So I'll kind of highlight the um, 
I would say three or four areas that I predominantly use in my analysis today. And it, it's rather simple. I think in, in the early days, like most, you try to find the criteria that, you know, is the golden goose that's going to be correct, you know, 90% of the time. You'll quickly find that that's unlikely to be the case. And you'll land somewhere about 55, 60% of being correct. And then it becomes a game of risk management. Um, the tools that I like is a volume profile. So you'll find that often on the right side of my charts. So that is volume at price, not volume at time. And I predominantly use that to identify areas that have been heavily traded over a fixed duration. In the case of the charts that I show with the S&P 500, that's typically over a two-year period. Uh, you can adjust that longer or shorter just to understand where participants have bought a stock. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. So you think about it, when when a participant is, let's say, in a positive position or they're, they're net positive on their on their a position that they bought within a stock. Typically, that's associated with feelings of good. You're happy. You're not. You may even be greedy. And then as you revert to that mean of back to zero, you fall back into, hey, things are okay, neutral. And then you go below zero and it starts to get a little bit scary and those declines accelerate. So knowing where those points are on the volume profile are key. Um, and you want to look for peaks. So areas that stand out that are absolutely important. Volume profile is just uniform and consistent. Uh, it's not enough to uh, to provide sufficient information. Mm -hmm. The other metric I often use and show up the uh, lower panel of my charts is something that I, I call net new highs. Mm -hmm. uh, it's my preferred measure of market breadth. It's very simple. It basically takes the number of stocks across the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ markets that are making new highs and you subtract the number of stocks making new lows. Mm -hmm. It gives you a positive or negative reading. The magnitude of that number uh, provides context to kind of the heartbeat of the market. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been th this year more than others, it's been really important in my opinion. You've had a market that's been carried by seven to 10 names and the other 490, some would say 493 are lagging and, and not really doing much. There's there's not much catching up behind them. So I, beneath the surface, I look at the market as being in a very unhealthy state right now. I Today, we're, we're in week eight of negative market breath. We had a nice rally today in the S&P 500 and NASDAQ, if you want to call it that. It, it, to me, it's a bounce that's easy to get excited about. But underneath the surface, things are just getting worse. Right. Um, so then you highs with breath. That would be the kind of second measure for me. Uh, the third we kind of already loosely talked about was sentiment. So I like to look at market sentiment. And this is not even on a chart. This is directly CNN, Fear and Grady Index. I do have my own custom sentiment indicator that I, I don't frequent too much. I just, it's, it's not as consistent or reliable. Um, I have an interest in understanding active fund manager exposure. So I often reference the name exposure index. Mm -hmm. uh, I found when you pair sentiment and active fund manager exposure, uh, it's a little comical, but when they're, when the market's in a state of fear and their active fund manager exposure is at a low, you find pivot points at bottoms and the same happens on the top. Mm -hmm. High exposure and greed is a typically a pivot point to the downside. Right. And then, excuse me. Sorry. And then, no, no, sorry. I just have to get a golf out there. And the, probably the most rudimentary or most active piece you'll see me post is, is around the moving averages. Mm -hmm. So I typically use three of them. Uh, but I focus mostly on two. 
And it's, they're all exponential moving averages. I find that in today's world with, uh, you know, the media, the news, and the moves being so fast just to the nature of the internet, I find exponential moving averages that added weight on data towards the tail, towards the end is, uh, is helpful. So I use the 20 day moving average and I refer to that as the short term, mm-hmm. the 50 day, which I refer to as the medium and then the 200, uh, which is a longer term. Mm-hmm. And then I have a very simple criteria in my analysis where if the short term crosses above the medium, that would be a bullish move. And on the vice versa, if the short term crosses below the medium, that would be a bearish move. Mm-hmm. And then within that context, there's things that I can look for based on how price has historically moved off those moving averages, whether we're positioned for a moderate bullish move or a severe bullish move, a moderate bearish move or a moderate or a severe bearish correction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I think we are today. So I, I think the market today, when I think about the S&P 500, is progressing through a severe correction. Uh, the chance for it to be moderate already passed. And uh, that leads me to that kind of initial target where I spoke about the volume profiles lining up at 39.50 through 41. Mm-hmm. Sorry, when you talk about a severe correction and the moderate is passed, sorry, could you explain that a little bit better? What, what makes this a severe correction in your view? Yeah, so... And I guess the term is, is is should be interpreted in terms of, for me, moderate correction means that when the moving averages have crossed to the downside, that the correction's already over. You've seen the worst of it. Mm-hmm. And you can look for the market to return up. You, the, the For example, the two corrections that we had observed earlier this year, so uh, that would have been in right at the tail end of January and then through uh, April, when the short-term moving average crossed beneath the medium, the market had already bought up and it was already ran, it was already transitioning towards the upside. The, the the bottom of that move had completed. Right. Now a severe correction, on the other hand, so the three larger moves that we observed through 2022, what you'll find is once that crossover occurs, price continues to go down. It doesn't really stop. And when it does rally and you do get these moments of relief, they find a rejection at those moving averages instead of claiming them and, and trading back above them. And that's really exactly what we saw last week. So last week was, it was easy to get excited um, until basically Thursday and Friday, actually Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, when the market fell apart. But for six consecutive days, uh, the market was hanging up above that medium duration moving averages, continually getting rejected. And I mean, that was a hallmark of the, what I call severe corrections. So it's not to necessarily mean severity in terms of magnitude. It just means the correction's not over. Moderate would have been over at the crossover, and that would have been on September 22nd. We're here a month later, and prices are continuing to decline, and we're sitting at a, a very key level. We're testing those lows of um, early October, mm-hmm. and I think we're, I mean, I'm highly confident that we're going to be breaking through that, and the decline should accelerate through that 4215 number. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense what you've been saying. And uh, like you say, I, I would tend to agree with that idea that we're probably going to revisit slightly lower lows. Now, I personally also like to uh, use the other form of technical analysis. I know it kind of divides the room. I'd like to hear your thoughts uh, on something like, for example, Elliott Wave and of course, uh, something like using Fibonacci retracements. Yeah, this is also a good, good question. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I do, I should pay some respect to it. Um, I, I spent 
I've about two and a half years practicing Elliott Wave Theory. And I think there's a lot of value that comes from it. Typically, um, for, for example, I think understanding wave structures, uh, that things go up in five and downs and threes, and knowing that a wedge has an ABCDE move within it. I think there's a value in seeing that. So in the same way as an engineer that I look at um, a reaction occurring, you can, as a, as a wave analyst, you know, kind of see that progression through the chart. I think Fibonacci retracements do serve value. Uh, I'm a big fan of the golden pocket. I don't, uh, I don't post it up much. It doesn't get all that much love. Um, but I do find value in that and the wave structure. The reason I moved away uh, from LEA wave theory and, and, and stopped using it in my practice is for me, the duration, which just wasn't a fit for, for how actively I wanted to trade, whether it was on a weekly or quarterly basis or monthly basis. And I found it a little bit more uh, subjective. Like I was able to come up with, and this is a positive thing too, so it shouldn't be considered fully negative. Um, one thing that LEA theory does is it forces you to see both sides of the potential outcome or, or what you're aiming to draw up. Very few forms of analysis force you to put in a point of invalidation. Wave theory does that. And I think that's an absolutely excellent early risk management learning uh, to put in a, a risk line or an invalidation line. So there's value from that. Um, but yeah, for me, it was just, I'd find myself drawing, you know, three or four alternate options and I wasn't able to have full conviction in them, uh, much like I do today. So I find that the method I use today, I can, I can stand behind a little bit more than I was with wave theory. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a very diplomatic answer. I like it a lot. And I think you pointed out, like you said, some of the strengths and also maybe some of the weaknesses, right? Maybe Elliott wave on smaller timeframes, not so good. Gives you kind of that optionality, but at the same time, maybe takes away that conviction. Um, I think it's interesting because also, you know, you talk about that 4,100 level, looking at my Elliott wave analysis, for example, I see that also as the, um, the 61.8% retracement of this last rally of what I could count as a wave three. So I find that quite interesting. And of course, you know, Elliott wave does have kind of an element of, um, you know, of sentiment, right? Of how those waves progress through sentiment, which I think is also something that you do, you do look at a lot. Um, I'm curious though, what do you think is the next step? Obviously you, you talk about the market probably bottoming at 4,100, 3,900. Um, first of all, well, let's take it by step. First of all, what would you uh, need to see, let's say, as confirmation that the market, let's say, has bottomed? So uh, sentiment for me, I'd like to see that. Mm -hmm. uh, even where it is now, it stays there for a few more weeks. I'm happy with that. I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to see price stay above 3950 Mm -hmm. uh, so that'd be kind of criteria one. I'm okay if it goes below 50 points, even 100 points, I can live with it so long as it's not sustained. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see the price trade below that for in excess of, of, say, I would say two weeks would be really pushing it for me. I'd start to get uncomfortable with the thought of this is the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, I would need to, so, so that 
I think I'm okay to speculate 39, 50, 40, 100 without knowing it's the bottom. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be looking for signals that suggest the bottom is in. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, uh, one of those will be just a very simple one. I want to see the 20-day moving average cross above the 20. For me, that's going to be a, a bullish uh, adjustment on the chart. And then I'll be able to navigate uh, from there with with a little bit better risk exposure. I'm not intending on going you know, 100% long exposure on uh, on this initial uh, bottom idea, but I'll be happy to start on a you know 25, 35% um, mm-hmm. and take it from there. And if we stay below that 39.50, I'll, I'll take the small loss. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting then. So you talk about kind of starting to scale in at that level, then perhaps how would you play? Then once you have confirmation of the bottom, you'd be looking maybe at scaling in at kind of key support levels or retracements. Is that kind of how you think about positioning? Yeah. So uh, on that crossover, I would like to I'd probably add additional exposure. And then you've got the natural July high. So say things continue to go up, if you get a breakout there, very traditional breakout, you'll have every cup and handle stand on X kind of screaming that that's kind of playing out. Mm. Um, that will likely be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you'll go back to chasing 2022 highs. I think the upside advances or signals that things are going well are actually easier to see uh, than than the risk to the downside. Um, especially if below 39.50 because it gets quite noisy beneath that. Mm-hmm. So, and then there's individual names. So, I mean, there, there's names that I like, like particularly the arc-like names. Um, I, I'm not excellent by any means in stage analysis, uh, but I, I do pay attention to a few folks that I think are quite good at it. Um, and you'll see a lot of those names are going to be progressing into that stage two move. Um, so what do you mean by stage by stage two move? Um, so with the, there's a, a there's stage analysis that is a, another form of technical analysis in the market. Uh, Stan Weinstein is, uh, is the gentleman who kind of coined it. Uh-huh. So not the right person to speak on on it here. Um, but typically, if you were to Google stage analysis, take a look at the images of it. Uh, what you'd end up seeing is that the market goes through stage one, two, three, and four. Uh, stage two kind of being, I think of that as being the um, the way one, two, three, four, five structure on an impulse move on a longer time frame. Right, right. Okay. So that'd be the, that'd be the impulse move over a, a longer duration. So it's it's a, they typically use a 30-week moving average uh, to kind of gauge those stages. But what you've seen um, with like Kathy Wood's arc, for example, is it is basing. It's It's... Mm-hmm. It's really starting to flatten out. Um, it may go down a bit more here, but over the long term, um, it is flattening. And once you start to see a curl up above that 30-week moving average, I think there will be potential upside there. Mm-hmm. So, But initially, I guess probably a point well made here. Um, as I position long, the majority of the allocation will start with the index. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't be putting on you know, the other speculative investments in, in meaningful size until the indices confirm my either bullish outlook or tell me to stay sidelined and keep bearish. Mm-hmm. Right. That's very interesting. And I actually wasn't that too familiar with stage analysis, but kind of lays the groundwork for my next question, which was, how do you think about the market in terms of uh, upside targets, right? Because obviously, you know, if you had something like Elliott Wave, you know, you get your Fibonacci extensions, but... Um, how do you think about upside targets? Is that something you project at all, or is it just a matter of uh, 
kind of obviously seeing the indicators at the moment and kind of just analyzing the market when it, you know, in the moment. Yeah, truthfully, I don't have great insight on that. But with the way I, I navigate the market, I won't be able, I would never be able to sell the top. Mm -hmm. um, potentially, you can make an argument that when sentiment, sentiment hits, you know, euphoria and, you know, active fund manager exposure hits a peak, I'll probably use that as kind of an early indication to say, hey, you know what, my time to, to exit the pool is now. Um, but that's, that's, that's a lot of, uh, weight to place on uh, two indicators that are updated. One of them is updated once per week and the other one is updated once at the end of the day. Um, so I'd likely exit a market, like say we were going through a euphoria rally, I'd, I'd probably exit on the first significant decline um, when the moving averages broke down. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Now, I'm, I'm capable of projecting the, the one to six, one eight, like I, I certainly can. Um, I've just projected it enough times where my waves aren't properly drawn and uh, I tend not to hit my target. Mm. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And now I'm also curious, we've talked a, bit about, a little bit about ARG, a kind of uh, asset which, well, has seen some correlations, kind of uh, in that in that bucket a little bit, but of course, you know, whole world of its own. And, you know, we've had a lot of uh, news on it in the last few weeks, and that is, of course, Bitcoin, which, you know, from a technical perspective, just broke above that kind of strong resistance level that we had at 31,000. Um, do you have any technical outlook on Bitcoin? And also, you know, do you have any fundamental views on it? Because I know that you know, a lot of people do have strong views on Bitcoin one way or the other. Uh, where do you stand? Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere between being honest with you, telling you I still don't get it after the years of having an opportunity to learn it. Mm -hmm. um, I've watched it go through cycles that are you know, phenomenal to watch from a, a trader's perspective and to a degree you envy it. Um, the news is exciting. I do keep the chart up on my screen just to keep tabs on what's going on in, in Bitcoin world. Um, I know that a lot of folks look at it as, as a risk on risk off metric. Uh, I'm not so sure about that, um, but I am aware of, of the opinions from an upside perspective. Um, I do have friends and colleagues that have interest in crypto, so I do draw some lines on those charts. Don't frequently share them. Um, for today, um, I think I'm, there's a 36,500. 36, Seems like a reasonable spot for this rally to uh, potentially slow down mm -hmm. um, and take a, take a healthy pause. Uh, but I think if we did see a sharp rejection there, um, and then again, these, these ranges are so wide. Mm -hmm. to, to, to look bad, at this stage, it would need to go back below 2,800. So it's 28,000. Mm -hmm. So, and those ranges are so wide. Mm -hmm. um, I, so, yeah, welcome to volatility. I don't be beyond that, James. I don't think I could give you much meaningful context on it. I don't, I don't participate in the market. Mm -hmm. I can, I can share with you that I have not enjoyed NFTs. So, w watching that kind of decline has been uh, moderately amusing for me on X, but no. Beyond that, it's it's not an area that I participate in. Perhaps I will one day. I know uh, the ETFs will become more accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, in the back of my mind, I do have to wonder: Will it be much like an IPO? You know, is it an opportunity for X to liquidity, uh, or is there genuinely that much demand that hasn't been able to access Bitcoin today mm -hmm. uh, that will show up? And I'm just not so sure about the latter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely a case to be made that it uh, it could be a sell the news kind of event, and you know, 
the doors are still open. I mean, we've had some some interesting developments, uh, you know, kind of pushing the idea that the ETF could could launch soon. But you know, you've seen a lot of twists and turns in Bitcoin. Like you say, the the news is always interesting and, and fun to keep up with. And I like I like do that. I always ask about Bitcoin because you know I think also as someone with a technical background, you know, I think Bitcoin obviously kind of lends itself a lot to to technical back to like uh, technical analysis and from its volatility. You know, obviously you can. Uh, you know, stand to stand to, uh, to to profit from it or or lose from it a lot, <laughs> as many have experienced. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, looks like a fun market. Not not one that I've participated in on either the good or bad. So it's just been a been an enjoyable news flow more than anything for me. Right, absolutely. Now, going to get a little bit away from the technical side, and again, feel free to answer as much or as little. As you say, as you as you feel comfortable with, um, uh, any thoughts on the more kind of macro environment? Of course, there's been a lot of talk about soft landing and you know stuff like uh, the treasuries uh, going up, the Fed pausing, hiking. First of all, is that anything that you give any importance to? Because I know some people are just like, yeah, that doesn't matter. I'm just focusing on the charts. And secondly, if you do have an opinion on it, what is it? Yeah, so I, actually, it's it's. There's one chart that stands out for me, and it's, it was actually published by LA, Elliot Wave International last year, and it still makes its rounds across Twitter and X uh, these days. And it was the the pivot in rates often precedes market bottoms um, in bear markets. And so if, if you think about where we're going, if you're on the side of soft or hard lighting, I guess that's that's debatable. But if you're on, on the team that says, hey, you know, rates have peaked, Fed's not going to go up anymore, and they're going to pivot. And, and you know that's the saving grace to the market. Um, the the charts that I've looked at suggest quite the opposite. They suggest that once we've pivoted, uh, markets will most likely bottom afterwards. And that's troublesome for me right now too, because as I think about that, I'm on team. Hey, rates will probably pivot at some point. Um, I don't know if it's going to be the higher for longer. Like if we're going to sustain here. And not my background to really take a good guess at that, but at some point I think we'll pivot. Mm -hmm. And when we do, the reason that's troublesome for me is I'm currently making an argument for 3950, 4100 being a base, and we haven't pivoted yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would suggest that you know there's a between now and then there's a rally, and thereafter there's a pivot. And if I'm bullish as that pivot occurs based on my technicals, I'll have that conflicting thought to me that says markets bottom after this pivot. Um, so that's the chart that I keep. I, I thought quite a lot about that chart. Um, and I mean, even Bank of America has, has shared a less aesthetically pleasing version of uh, what Elliott International has posted. But yeah, that's one I like. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, historically, um, you know, the, the Fed pivot obviously comes, you know, at a time of a uh, recession and, you know, stocks tend to sell off. It is interesting. The last guest I had, uh, George Robertson, was in fact making the case that he believed you know, that rates would keep going up, and that would actually uh, lead to a much higher stock market as well. Which, at the moment, seems to be a quite a contrarian thought, right? Most people are, are, are a bit afraid of the higher rates, but like you say, it's actually maybe the lower rates that we that we should be afraid of moving forward, right? Yeah, yeah, and I. Admittedly, I looked at those charts as as EWI had published them, and I thought, "Geez, okay, well, we're still going up," um, but I had bearish thoughts, right? So I I did I neglected the long uh, perspective, uh, but the market did continue to grind up all the way through twenty twenty two, for sure. 
So that I, that is the case. And again, I'm not the right person to position on this, but any reading suggests to me that you don't pivot because you wanted to. You pivot because you had to, because something broke that you didn't plan on on occurring. And I mean, you've even seen, I mean, Ackman's a bit of a character on next, but him coming out, closing his bond short, saying the market or the economy is decelerating faster than we, you know, we see in the data today. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder what data he's looking at that makes it say that. Um, but yeah, uh, if a pivot occurs, it's not going to be because it was planned. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be because you know, we needed it. And history suggests that's often been the case. Right, right. Now, also, I, I was meaning to ask you, in terms of any particular sector or uh, kind of, and yeah, basically any sector in the market that you're interested in, now, both from a fundamental and technical perspective, any kind of uh, maybe like indexes that stand out from an, from a technical perspective, so like oil maybe or gold, any thoughts there? Um, so as a rule of thumb, I, you won't see me tweeting or trading much about the, the oil markets. That's just the industry I work at. And um, the last interview I had done actually, with the, the interviewer found it interesting that I didn't participate in the oil market. Um, right. A, a large portion of my income comes from from that energy sector today. Uh, I feel like that's sufficient exposure to to that market. Um <laughs> So I, I don't, I'm not interested in putting my investment dollars into that segment. I do watch it though. So I do have got thoughts. Uh, I, I'm not in the camp of oil is going to 150 uh, or a hundred for that matter. I think we'll see 65 before that. Um, that's a little bit humorous to me to see some of the headlines. Um, but no, for me, it's, 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 it's very basic. S&P 500, NASDAQ uh, sprinkled with a couple of stocks that I find interesting, whether they come from Kathy Wood's portfolio um, or individual names that I've come across and found interesting. Mm-hmm. I yet haven't followed gold enough to to find um, to have much of an opinion. It's going to be hard not to look at that chart, though, um, especially as it's breaking out of what's going to look like a four-year top. Uh, that's a that's a large flag on the chart. So something to watch. Um, how that fits in on the macro side again is 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 not my forte to speak up. Yeah, absolutely. I recently uh, wrote a piece on gold. Said both types of charm, and you know, it certainly looks uh, very interesting. Uh, I do, I do really like the way you you think about uh about the oil market and how you you already have enough exposure with that. <laughs> Since the fact that your income's coming from there, definitely an interesting take on that. Um, it. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say it's 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 funny because you think you have additional insights, and this is something that I think is. Right. is often lost on, on participants. It's I've got insights on very small details. Mm-hmm. Um, and small details often don't move money. It's yeah. the very simple concepts that are easy to understand. For example, you know the, the Bitcoin piece, BlackRock putting up an ETF. That's simple to understand. Mm-hmm. AI was simple to understand through ChatGPT because you could you know punch in a couple of cute codes and it would give you great answers or it would help you write a code, help you write a paper, answer a couple of questions. Um, you could get a recipe out of ChatGPT if you type in, you know, I'd like to cook this. Mm-hmm. That made AI so simple and easy to understand. Um, and the details that I collect from the energy market, they're they're meaningful to me, but to 99% of the other market participants, they don't mean anything. They're not going to make them more interested in investing in the oil market. So despite having maybe a bit of an edge by being in the industry, it's truly not an edge. If anything, it's a detriment because you think you have an edge. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. Sorry to digress on that, but I just, yeah, I find it is an interesting point that um, I don't do it for the purposes of income exposure, but then at the same time, the, the edge that I think I have is, is, in my opinion, actually a lack of one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think what you say makes a lot of sense as well and kind of ties in with the idea of, you know, sentiment. At the end of the day, uh, you know, something, you know, small details aren't going to really drive sentiment, something, you know, kind of easy to understand for the general public, something like AI, that's kind of, that's something that can, you know, maybe push the needle, but obviously maybe not those uh, smaller details. I'm, I'm curious because you did mention AI and I'm kind of trying to maybe uh, get some get some actual single stocks uh, picks out of you if, if you're comfortable with that. Any interesting names, for example, Palantir is one that, uh, for example, I know that Kathy was interested in. I've researched a lot. Any particular names in that area that you'd uh, like to share with us? Yeah, so what I, one that I do like, and I don't know if it fits the full-on AI theme, um, but I do like Unity Software. Mm-hmm. So that's just ticker symbol U. Um, I think a lot of what Apple's doing with the uh, Vision Pro and what Meta's doing with their Ray-Ban collaboration and glasses I think you'll start to see Unity find this way weaved into those uh, markets in the future. I, I think of what an initial desktop PC used to look like 20 years ago. And I know for certain that the version of the Apple Vision Pro and the Ray-Ban glasses we saw from Meta, uh, that's version one. And in 10, 15 years time, uh, it, wouldn't sh- it wouldn't surprise me if the glasses from Ray-Ban that Meta has today have the capacity to do what the Apple Vision Pro is trying to do with the big headset. Mm-hmm. It's a wild thought, but that, that type of progression just seems natural to me. And I feel like Unity uh, will find themselves uh, within that, that portfolio. So mm-hmm. I know they're already kind of tied up a little bit there with Apple. Um, plus, they're also a little bit involved in the gaming sector. I've, I've actually been interested in Unity's non-gaming um, capacity. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. That's very just so I know it's, a, it's it's not a perfect AI answer, but I think it's it's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very interesting. I'll, I'll definitely have to look a little bit more into Unity because it's it's not one that I've uh, that I've been tracking uh, as of late. And now, just to finish off with a little bit of a sadder note, because you know, obviously, I'm an earlier wave guy. I like to look at both options. We've uh, kind of talked a little bit about you know what the scenario is where we bottom and then continue to rally. We have t- talked a little bit about what the other scenario is, but not, not quite. I mean, you did mention there's a little bit of noise beneath that maybe $4,100 $3, level. Um, what exactly, more or less, I mean, do you think we could expect if, if indeed, you know, we are we are heading uh, down and kind of sustain a break below that $3,900 uh, level? Yeah, so if we see if we see sustained trading below $3,950, I think uh, all thoughts should become focused on looking at the October lows from 2022. Um, at, a, at a minimum, mm-hmm. and then we, we we would look for that to. That's where I think I could get into the camp of a double bounce. And even from the wave theory perspective, you'd be developing a flat. You'd see so many. You'd see a confluence of many analysis point to a potential double bottom or a wide triangle. Um, so I, I would be looking at least to those October lows. And I, I mean, for perspective, say you got to the bottom of that thirty-nine fifty and you broke beneath it. October lows is another ten percent. That that becomes that becomes devastating for a lot of people. That that would that would put you twenty for, from the S and P five hundred. You'd be twenty five percent off highs for the Nasdaq, probably thirty five. Mm-hmm. That's not a lot of fun over two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really when you kind of maybe I think get that lost decade feel, right? Mm-hmm. 
you're you're twenty percent through a lost decade at that time. Mm. Right. That, that 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 definitely that definitely makes a lot of sense. So that's that's where I'd look, and then I mean, then you really hit the fan if we start to break those those twenty twenty two lows. But those are bridges I crossed. Then I, I like to think about it, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are bridges we would cross. Then and would see how 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 severe it is because likely there's probably a couple of good trades to catch along the way between there and now that that are you know, a little bit more visible. Uh -huh. I'm I'm curious that do you do you ever actually actively short the market then? I do, yeah. Right. Okay. Just just curious then. So there might be some is that is that the kind of trade to talk about that some good shorting possibilities then? I think shorting here is a little bit risky to be honest. So I mean I had um I had attempted to short the market actually on the earlier this year that was unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. So through, through, through May and into June, as the market broke out, I was short the S&P 500 between actually 3,900 and 4,100, the same area I'm looking at it to come back at now. Uh, that short closed relatively quickly as the market carried on through July. Um, I did reshort again, uh, not at the July highs, but close enough where I'm quite proud of it. So I, I had enjoyed uh, September and October quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of my short exposure is closed at this time, and I'm not interested in adding any new short exposure. Mm -hmm. my, my intention is to close the rest of it between 3915, 4100, and then position long. Right. And since you don't really use options, what would you be looking at to short the market then? Like an inverse ETF? Could use the inverse ETF for I would short SPY. Sorry? Short the SPY. Okay. Right, right. Short the spy just but without uh, using options. That you mean? It, you can short the SPX, but you you could sell the SPX. Right. Okay. Okay. I see what you mean. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Tom, it's been absolutely great having you on the show. Uh, I mean, like I said, I, I'm really interested in all the work you've you've been doing, and you know, I, I think it's really great. Um, where can we send people on the internet to to find you? Yeah, so you, you can find me on X as uh, Tom the Trader One. I mean, there, there's unfortunately many of me, uh, so you, you got to look for the one that uh, is is just Tom the Trader One, and then you can find my weekly. I, I write a weekly note on Substack, so it comes out on Sundays uh, at nine between eight to nine a.m. Mountain Standard Time, and that's linesonachart.substack.com. And uh, I'll leave you with one more thought there. As it goes with with shorting the markets and inverse ETFs, I typically don't advocate for. I'm okay with the ones that are one X, uh, but I don't advocate for the ones that are two or three X leveraged. You'll just in a volatile market if you hold on to them for too long, uh, you'll you'll get it back more uh, than you'd like. So it's it's the mathematics for shorting those aren't favorable over a longer duration. So I'm okay with the ones that are one X, um, or if you can directly actually short. Uh, like the SPY ETF or the SPX, mm -hmm. that'd be the approach. Right, of course, that's that's a great point. And anyway, like I said, some great stuff on Twitter, also on the Substack. So uh, if you guys haven't already, go check out Tom. Uh, he's got some great work out there. And yeah, hopefully things will work out kind of like we're expecting. We uh, we'll see that bottom. And anyway, we'll see where we are in a couple, two, three months, and uh, you know maybe we can do a follow up then. Thank you so much for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you're still around, I take it you enjoyed the content. So please go ahead and follow to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. 
Remember that I do a lot more on Substack and on Seeking Alpha, where I have a weekly newsletter, I do videos, and plenty of technical analysis. You can go ahead and follow me for free on Substack to know more.